support this podcast or any of the other shows produced by Trivium Studios, visit our website at triviumstudios.org. On our site, you'll find links to our Patreon page, social media, and the services we offer, as well as much, much more. Your traffic on the webpage, subscription to this podcast, and willingness to subscribe and rate help us reach a wider audience, so we appreciate you taking the time to help us out. Just head down to triviumstudios.org to support the show. If you would like to advertise on this podcast or any of the shows associated with the Trivium Studios Network, please email us at trivium or at sophist at triviumstudios.org. Thanks again. Welcome back to Gods of the Wild, an inquiry into laws received by Eli Brown. The following is Chapter 2 of Mists and Men. Please sit back, relax, and enjoy. Chapter 2 of Mists and Men We inhabit a world without mystery. Whenever a question comes to mind, one can find an answer by simply turning to their phone. It's a new feature of humanity, to always be without confusion, seeing as answers didn't come so easily before. One had to go to a library, search through a catalog, they even had to separately search each term, looking for book after book among the shelves. Just for a brief summary, one had to open an encyclopedia, paging through the textbook in order to find an answer. Sometimes, arguments were settled with, I don't know, long-lost terms in the murmur of our modern worlds. The westernmost beaches of Washington State are home to a certain mystique of their own, waves crashing against dense rainforests ascending to the mountaintops. The moss begins at the edge of the sand, deadening the sounds of life beyond the trees. Rocky islands, shorn off from the mountainside, rise like towers among the swells, a bubble of life cast out to sea. There is a constant mist that hangs on the steep slopes which face the ocean, infinitely renewed by the clouds coming off the water. There's no development on most of the shorelines, as they are protected by the Olympic Peninsula National Park. Instead, huge stacks of white logs pile up, creating bridges and highways through which to navigate the sand. Even without the park status, I wouldn't expect to see many buildings there. It would be a very strange place to call home. There's a specific mood that guards the sands of that westernmost coastline, collected in the place where the water never warms. The bone-chilling cold and misting fog ensures no escape from the tone of the land, sinking into your bones as soon as you step out of the car. It's a gloomy, deadening nostalgia for a past you never lived, somehow beckoning you into the forest to discover what it is that you've missed. Filled with mystery, the massive trunks and huge needles leave you feeling very small, Jack exploring the giant's home after wandering up a beanstalk. The never-ending breaking of the waves, infinite expanse of the water, and the lack of human intervention results in a sort of time dilation. One can't help but feel as though they've just washed up on the beach, with memories of home, but no idea how they arrived. The first time I went to college, It was in Tacoma, Washington, close enough to that strange coastline to still feel the mood, even from afar. I left Montana two weeks before the school year began, headed on a solo road trip to tour my future home. 
It was a day's worth of driving from Kalispell to Portland, and I spent the first day of my journey engulfed by a podcast themed around the mystique of the Pacific Northwest. I spent the night in my Monte Carlo, making up as much, made up as much as possible to function as both RV and sports car, pulled over somewhere in the heart of the Columbia Gorge. The next day, after some hiking, I went to the city and was amazed at how green Portland was. A couple days later, and while it much lighter, I cruised towards the ocean, so excited to finally feel the sand between my toes. I arrived in Seaside at sunset, parked my car next to a restaurant's outdoor seating, and could smell the garlic and butter as soon as I stepped out onto the street. I wasn't even sure how to get to the beach, though I realize now how far off that question really is. Having grown up on a lake, I was searching for some kind of public access. The shoreline I was raised along is almost entirely private, huge plots of land purchased to build million-dollar vacation homes. Eventually, I realized that I just needed to walk towards the ocean, and I finally found the main street of the town, a boardwalk theme even despite the asphalt. The street ended in a roundabout, a bronze sta statue standing in its center, and on either side the sidewalk descended into the sand. The beach was laid out on the other side of the railing, extending out about 200 yards to the sea. As I approached the overlook, a man playing a saxophone nearby stuck up, struck up a tune, and a wonderful life rang out, accompanying me onto the dunes. That night, I crossed North America's longest bridge, driving out into the dark over the top of the mighty Columbia River. I spent the night in a local state park, pulling in after dark and leaving early so as to avoid the fee. After a couple hours, I arrived at the next campsite, one of the only beaches on the peninsula to actually permit camping along the waterfront. Packing up my supplies and locking the car behind me, I began my hike down the shore, loads shifting uncomfortably on my back as I walked. Though there wasn't a soul in sight, I still walked around the next bend of the coast, wanting to be sure that my spot was protected. Finally, I began searching the tree line, looking for a place where I could hang my hammock among the logs. It didn't take me long to find an opening just wide enough, and I went to work, setting up camp beside the ocean. The broken remains of trees around me provided shelter from the wind, and the trunks behind me somehow made me feel safer. That feeling was totally unfounded, seeing as I, haven't e I hadn't even considered the tide. I was able to create a sort of hanging campsite, suspending most of my goods above the sand to keep the critters off. After placing the last of my things, I set out looking for wood and rocks, creating a fire pit in the sand to ward off the cold. I collected my bundle and built up a circle, carefully placing rocks in a ring to contain the embers. Finally, I got the fire lit and went out to explore the tide pools and walk without gear along the shoreline. I returned to camp around dusk that evening, face burned from the pleasant combination of sand and wind. I warmed soup over the flames, shadows dancing off the pale skin of the logs, and finally settled into my hammock, eating as the sun drifted lazily behind the sea. I finished my meal and rinsed out the bowl, dripping water onto the sand already moist with dew. Looking up, I glimpsed the source of the moisture, a fog rolling in from the ocean in the last rays of dim light. Climbing one last time into my suspended bed, my mind began racing, and I knew better than to think that I'd be lulled right to sleep. Before long, the shadows danced in the mist around the fire, and with the sun now fully set, the fog seemed to urge the darkness on. It was a different kind of black, pressing against my eyes, 
the kind of dark that heightens the rest of your senses as a response. Behind me, the forest rang out with the rustling of the night, causing the hair to stand up down the entirety of my spine. The frigid, inky air was now filled with a rustling wind to accompany the cacophony of the waves. I tossed and turned in my sleeping bag, sinking towards the center, questioning my reasoning and venturing out onto the beach when I, clim when I caught a glimpse of the sky above me, immediately again obscured, obscured by the fog. With no light pollution to speak of, the glow of the stars and a dim crescent moon lit up the beach as if turning back on the light which had just gone out. Suddenly, I was thankful for the wind, blowing the mist over my camp, and before long the haze had gone, allowing me to see from one end of the beach to the other. I laid there in the hammock and soon realized that I was breathing normally again, the change in my airflow alerting me to the panic I had been entering before. The fog had brought with it a fear of sorts, covering the landscape with strange uncertainty. I stared up at the stars, wondering if I was the first to experience such an emotion, attached to moisture drifting in from the sea. This sent my mind trekking down a much more pleasant path, suddenly pondering the people who had experienced this place. I wondered about the ones who had walked on the shoreline, perhaps even set up camp in the same location about the person who saw this place first, and those who claimed to have seen it first after. I wonder whether someone had slept before in this very spot, staring up at these stars this time of year. Slowly, I wandered into sleep myself, think, still thinking about the history laid out before me on the shore. In 1992, American political scientist Francis Fukuyama declared the collapse of the Soviet Union marked, quote, not just the passing of a particular period of post-war history, but the end of history as such, that is, the end point of mankind's ideological evolution and the universalization of Western liberal democracy as the final form of human government, end quote. His book, entitled The End of History and the Last Man, is a larger discussion of an essay he published in 1989, entitled The End of History, and draws on a political philosophy developed over the last two centuries, primarily by Karl Marx and Friedrich Hegel. Fukuyama believes that history should be viewed as an evolutionary process, and, as such, events can still occur in the end times, but liberal democracy itself will never evolve. Yet, as Fukuyama himself realizes, his prediction is not entirely novel. As mentioned before, both Hegel and Marx argued that history would come to an end, and both actually predicted a specific form of government that history would end with. The first use of this phrase in the Western canon was by French philosopher and mathematician Antoine Cornet in 1861, quote, to refer to the end of the historical dynamic with the perfection of civil society, end quote. The end of knowledge is another topic widely discussed, especially in philosophical circles, and also isn't new. Thomas Hobbes, author of The Leviathan, wrote in, 18, er, in 1655 that, quote, the end of knowledge is power, end quote, also contemplating the consequences of that limit. In the eyes of these great men, the pursuit of knowledge is entirely finite and coming within the grasp of human potential. Even despite their optimism, however, I can't help but be reminded of Nietzsche's Last Man, a parable I first heard in an existentialism class at the University of Montana. To introduce the topic, our professor quizzed us about this last man, inquiring over and over again about the situation which may have resulted in that name. 
The answer is almost too obvious, and, after struggling for some time, he gave our class the answer, noting that the last man would be unable to procreate. Therefore, in the parable, Nietzsche recognizes the nihilism of the last man, the experience negating understanding that such a being would suffer from. More importantly, however, Nietzsche also makes the point that the last man is society's goals, goal, a creative drought marking the end of time. Two centuries later, Fukuyama's conclusions render Nietzsche correct. Peter L. Berger's book, A Rumor of Angel a rumor of angels, begins by reminiscing on a comforting, nostalgic scene. A child wakes up in the night, perhaps from a bad dream, and finds himself surrounded by darkness, alone, beset by nameless threats. It is hardly an exaggeration to say that, at this moment, the mother is in being invoked as a high priestess of the protective order. It is she, and in many cases she alone, who has the power to banish the chaos and restore the benign shape of the world. And of course, any good mother would do just that. She will turn the lamp on, perhaps, which will encircle the scene with a warm glow of reassuring light. She will speak or sing to the child, and the content of this communication will invariably be the same. Don't be afraid, everything is in order, everything is all right. If all goes well, the child will be reassured, his trust in reality recovered, and in this trust he will return to sleep. Is the mother lying to the child? If the natural is the only reality there is, the mother is lying to the child, lying out of love, to be sure, and obviously not lying to the extent that her reassurance is grounded in the fact of this love, but in the final analysis, lying all the same. Why? Because the reassurance, transcending the immediately present to individuals and their situation, implies a statement about reality as such. End quote. There is one feature of the last man I think Nietzsche got wrong. He thought their lives would be comfortable, passive, and boring, wandering across the earth without a worry in the world. And yet, even though the end is here, and has been for nearly 30 years, there is no transcendence of our current situation. Instead, we are stuck with reality as such. Increases in complexity, in understanding and governance, in the growth rate of technology and in our population have done little to make us happy, to make us content with all the changes. There is no being reassured, no lying out of love, no one that we trust with the priesthood of the protective order. Beset by threats that we have plenty of names for, we recognize the true shape of the world and aren't comforted by its benign form. Turning on the light only makes them clearer and, as such, we have collectively agreed to just be duped. I still wonder sometimes about the beach that I slept on, pondering the thoughts that crossed my mind that night. Once, to answer my question, I even googled the name of the place and turned up nothing, a true blessing in disguise. I don't think there would be any way to answer my questions, and I hope I'm right in that regard. That place stays on my mind because of the mystery it held and still holds, avoiding the inquisitive gaze of the modern era. I used to wish there were more places like that, windows to a time I missed by a moment. And yet, now, I believe that there are plenty available. All you have to do is look. To support this podcast, or any of the other shows produced by Trivium Studios, visit our website at triviumstudios.org. On our site, you'll find links to our Patreon page, social media, and the services we offer, as well as much, much more.
Your traffic on the website, subscription to this podcast, and willingness to subscribe and rate help us reach a wider audience, so we appreciate you taking the time to help us out. Just head down to triviumstudios.org to support the show. If you would like to advertise on this podcast or any of the shows associated with the Trivium Studios Network, please email us at sophist at triviumstudios.org. Thanks again.